Hello and welcome back to another episode of Hokshida. So, Dad, last time you told me about your experiences at residential school. And you also said that your family also went to residential school. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff about that. Alright. That was a residential school my whole entire family went. My grandparents, my mom's dad and mother, my dad's parents, they went to residential school. My parents went to school there. And all my mom's brothers and sisters, my dad's brothers and sisters, they all went to residential school. So I have a few stories from their perspective of when they went. Now, for instance, uh, the stories that came from my grandfather on my mom's side. So that's my mom's dad. When he was taken from his parents, Alec and Maggie Nukshish, uh, they came to the door with, I should say, a priest knocked on the door. When my grandfather opened the door, it was early, early in the morning. In fact, my mushroom used to sit here. He didn't even have his pants on yet. It was so early. So he opened the door and like I said, he had a rifle behind the door. And he looked out and the priest was there along with uh, two RCMP officers. Uh, both in the red serge jackets. One had a rifle, the other had his hand on his, his uh, sidearm, his handgun. And both were drawn, not pointing at my grandfather, but ready to be pointed. And the priest gave him two options. He said, option one, we take your kids and they go to school. And you don't live anymore. Or option two, you just give us your children and you're here. So he chose a second choice and gave up his kids, his oldest son. And year after, two years after, all the rest of his children as well. So after about uh, 10 months in the sort of school, that's when the kids would be coming back. They were taken in September and they weren't given back until June. And in that first 10 months of schooling, my grandfather came back not speaking Cree anymore. He only spoke English and French. And my Mushroom and Kukum never lost their language. So when they tried to talk to their oldest son, he, he didn't talk back. In fact, every time they talked to him, he'd, he'd hide. Run and hide behind furniture, hide behind a stove, or run outside and hide. And my grandfather never figured out why, you know, why he did this. So they ended up sending their oldest son to his grandfather, Mushtatak. He uh, took the grandson firstborn into his household. And looked after him while he was not at school. Trying to figure out what was wrong with the boy. And the old people never spoke English or French. So they spoke to him in Cree. And they got him back to talking in with the Nahil language. The Cree language. And finally got it out of him. That uh, every time he would speak Cree at the school. He'd take a beating. He got whipped up and down his back. And scolded. Or they'd take him and they'd, you know, put his hands in hot water. There was a old nun that would actually put a, it's like a choke chain. She'd wrap it around his wrist and she'd pull on it. And she'd pull on it so bad that it would actually turn his hand purple. till he couldn't feel anything. Those were the tortures that the 
priests and the nuns did that to children who spoke their language. And the funny thing, funny thing was, my grandfather went to school there for eight, nine, maybe ten years. And when he came out of school, he spoke fluent Cree. He, he never gave up his language. He got caught many times, got whipped many times. But he never, never gave up his language. That's one positive part of it. But the thing was, my grandfather took a hell of a beating otherwise. Now, his younger brothers and sisters, there's lots of them. There's 14 of them. Well, 13 counting him. And each in turn, they all went to school at Labrette. Each had their own bad stories or good stories. But the thing was, that whole lineage of children, with the exception of my grandfather, Morse, lost their language. Lost the Cree language, lost the Soto language. They spoke English. They could understand the language later on in life, but they could never really grasp the speaking of it. Now, one of my uncles, uh, everybody knows him as Porgy. Now, he is a special uncle to me. You know, he's sort of like my surrogate dad, too. Took me as more than a nephew, put it that way. And he was my teacher when it came to being a traditional person, looking after the bundle, looking after the pipes, looking after the rattles, traditional stories. After my grandfather passed away when I was 12 years old, my Uncle George, or Porgy, took over as my teacher to make sure I was doing everything right, looking after that pipe. So, you know, one night we're visiting. Yeah, just, just, as they say, shooting the shit kind of thing. And my uncle, he, he had a few brews in the, in the fridge and he was drinking. You know, had beer and he was, you know, he had what they call a St. Vitus dance. So he had a very, uh, he was shaky all the time. Could hardly understand because his tongue wouldn't work right. And he had these scars around his mouth. Finally, I had enough nerve to ask him. I said, Uncle, where'd you get that big scar? And he had a big scar from his nose all the way to the corner of his mouth. It really stuck out, really stuck out. In fact, when he he grew facial hair, it, it never grew over towels. He had this big quarter-inch scar right to his mouth. He was showing really white in skin color. Wow. And I finally told him, I said, Uncle, what, what happened? I said, you got into a bar fight. Oh, no, 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 no. He said, this happened when I was about six years old. He said, I said, oh, six? Holy heck. I said, where? I told him. Well, I was going to school at Labrette. He said, it was a, it was a good day, he said. We all had our own toboggans, he said. We didn't always get to use our own toboggans, he said, but we all got a toboggan each. So each in line, he said, we slide down the valley, he said, and you'd have to lean your body to catch the curves, he said. But I forgot to catch the curve, and I went over the edge. When I went over the edge, he said, I went right into a barbed wire fence, he said, and it hooked his mouth and tore it all the way up to his nose and popped off, he said. And I rolled down the rest of the hill, just bleeding, he said. Oh, my lip was split wide open. And then he said, your dad came and saved me. And my dad was there, so he ran down there, picked them up. Holy jeez, he said, they dragged them up and took them into the school. So it was a rough ride, he said. They threw me in a big wooden sled, he said. And they pulled me across the road and into the schoolyard, he said. Straight to the nun, he said. And the nun, she took him in the hospital. He said, kind of per se hospital where she did her own stitching. This old nun came out there and just splashed, you know, rubbing alcohol in his face, burnt it and... Then he said the two other nuns came in there wrestling with him. He said for about 45 minutes they squeezed his face and they stitched his lip up. Just savage stitching. Yikes. Then he said it just stuck out. He said it never really healed right. He said I could never drink water out of a cup after. He said you know that kind of 
hot tea or hot coffee later in life. He would just pour out. He said, "Is now?" He said, I, "I have." He said at the time, he said, "I have no feeling." He said in my lip. He said, "I have no feeling." He said because they they destroyed the feeling by stitching it. He said it burnt so bad that it never healed right. So they burnt out the the flesh. They they burnt all the all the nerve endings in the in his lip and they squeezed it together and the old nun stitched quarter inch stitches right across his lip and he said they put so many stitches in there he said that he said it took two months to heal and when they did they had to actually cut the the threading and pull the threading out he's in fact he said there's still threads in there and you looked yes definitely there was threads still in his lip yikes and that's 50 years later after the fact or longer so he basically gave himself a cleft lip. Yeah, they gave him a cleft lip. That's how he, and scarring on the inside of his mouth. Ugh. Everywhere. But that's, you know. But but the thing was, he said, after that, he said, I got a tough name. He said, after that, he said, they stopped calling me Georgie, Porgy. He said, only the girls did, he said. So he said, my new name was Barbed Wire. He said, Barbed Wire. And everybody left me alone because I was a tough guy. Leave me alone, my name's Barbed Wire. He said, oh, they, they all just left him alone. That That's the funny side of it, you know. Now, whenever you tell stories or hear stories about Labrette School, they always bring, oh, yeah, Barbwire is this ranked guy. It's from here and from there. I know who Barbwire was. That was my Uncle George. That, that was, that was Barbwire. So that, that's another funny story from my one uncle. Wow. Now, when I was a little kid, you know, I was one of those little, little kids that stay up all hours and I was always listening. And my cocoa and mushroom had some relatives from the north came down to visit and they did ceremonies on the reserve and then they stopped in at my grandparents and had coffee and tea had supper and they're gonna head out as some of my my grandma's relatives from up in kawakatoos came down to visit from parmans and they're talking and things shifted stories shifted and they talked about residential school and they went to my grandparents never went to residential school so whenever people would come over and visit they'd ask them did you go to school they'd say yeah well what school did you go to they didn't say what school they went to oh how was that school you see, my grandmother had a younger brother and a younger sister, and they went to school. They were taken away and shipped off to Marivelle School in Kawasis, and they never returned. See, when they went off to school, it was right in that same time period when that uh, German, uh, was it the German flu or the Spanish the flu? Spanish flu came through. That's right, the Spanish flu came through. Nineteen eighteen ish. Nineteen eighteen, nineteen in that in that time period. And they all were at that residential school when when that sickness went through, and the the boy and the girl never survived. So they're they're one of the the seven hundred percent, seven hundred bodies that were found. The graves, their their graves are in there too. Yeah, my my grandmother's younger brother and sister. Their last names were Playing Bear. Uh, I've been thinking a long time what their what their names were. It'll come to me, but it was said once or twice. So you got to think back and remember but she had a younger brother and a younger sister and their last names were playing bear and they were buried there another bad story from residential school but the thing is these relatives that came to visit my grandparents they were talking about their their this lady a grand auntie of myself she was talking about her her stay at, at muskogan school when she was at muskogan and she was uh in charge of washing dishes this one this one evening so supper was done and she was washing dishes she said her and six other girls are really washing fast trying to dry and get stuff done 
And that old nun that was in charge was really stomping their feet, really getting after them, you know, hurry up, you know, kind of thing. So they're going as fast as they could. And then another nun came walking in, and my auntie, she turned around and said she saw that nun carrying a baby in pink clothing, a knitted outfit, a little tiny baby. She looked, and she looked at it, oh, a little girl baby. And then the old nun looked at my, my grand-auntie and grabbed her. She come on, I got a job for you, she said. Here, take this, she said. And she handed that baby to her, so she held on to that baby. And they took her downstairs. She sat into the furnace room. Oh. And uh, basically that nun told my grand my grand-auntie, she said, throw that baby in the fire or you're going in. Yeah, this is, I'm telling you, a bad one here, but that's, it can't get much worse than this, but it, it, it does. If you think about the big thing, it, it, it does get worse than that. My my grand, grand auntie couldn't do it, so that nun grabbed it and just chucked it in, slammed the door shut, and then gave my auntie a licking. As she said, the worst licking that she ever took, ever. And she said, I, I, I had to, she said, because I, I couldn't do that. She said, I, I could not do that. And at the time, she was eight years old, nine years old, in that time period. So if you can imagine that, making an eight, nine-year-old baby do that to another baby. But that's, you know, residential school, concentration camp, whatever you want to call it. You see, that was what residential school was. It was to take the Indian out of the Indian. At any cost? At any cost. And didn't care. I mean, that... You just look around the world, you see all these countries, you know, doing bad things to their people back and forth, back and forth. And all you got to do is look at Canada in the early 1800s, 1900s. Look what they did to us, as First Nations people. They still not officially said sorry for it. Oh, yeah, they give you a little, oh, we're sorry. Here's a little bit of money. Oh, we're sorry. And people always say, get over it. You know, get over this. You know, you know, if this happened to you, would you get over it? You know, this is our family. This is my family history. This happened to my aunties, my uncles. You know, these are bad stories. But they're stories. You know, they, they people, oh, that's just, you, you made it up. No, I didn't make it up. Why the hell would someone make that crap up? I mean, it, it's out there. It has happened. You know, even I have other aunties, similar stories. Like, for instance, we're going to go back to Labrette School again. My one auntie, that's my mom's, technically my mom's aunt, but raised as a sister. She and this girl were best friends at Labrette School. This is in the 30s. Uh, I, got, no, I should say the 1920s to 1930s, Labrette School. And her best friend was, uh, how would I say, chosen by one of the priests to be her to be his special girl. So they were together in school September, October, November. And then her friend disappeared. Gone. What happened? Well, she just disappeared. So she said, oh, all spring she's looking for her. Fall, nothing. She went home for the summer, came back in September. October she sees her friend running around the schoolyard. And recess, so she ran over there to go say hi to her. And her friend looked at her and she waved like, don't. And she ran off to a different part of the school. 
that she kept asking questions, asking questions, and asking questions. And then it turned out, you know, years later, when they're getting, you know, five, maybe about three years later, her, her friend went back to the same class as her. Again, they were friends, and she asked her friend, where did you go? What's going on? Like, what's happening? She kept telling, shh, don't say nothing. Shh, be quiet, she'd say. So now later in life, when they're out of school and they see each other, her friend came and visited her at her mom and dad's place, my grandparents' place. And my mushroom invited them in. They had a big talk and meal. And that's where that girl broke down and started telling exactly what happened to her while she was at Labrette School. I don't know her name because my grandparents never said her name. And my auntie never spoke of it ever since. But her best friend had three kids while she was at Brett school. And all three kids are no longer here. They'll never find the bodies because they were destroyed within fireplaces. You see, that's, that's, a, that's a thing about Brett school, or I should say any residential school. If they wanted to do something horrific, they did it in such a way that there'd be no evidence. Meaning... They didn't even write down when kids died in the school for record keeping. They kept them alive on paper so that they'd get full funding from the government. So the government would give them money, full money every month or every year so they'd have the numbers. And that's how it's kept. So that's why today they're having such a difficult time trying to find, how do I say, records from the Roman Catholic Church because they won't give any of it. It's all sealed. Government Canada doesn't have what the church didn't send them, and what they do have doesn't show how many kids lived, how many kids didn't live, and where they died, where they were buried. And that's why they're finding bodies everywhere. Each school will have burial grounds. But if they find anything, that's another story. And some schools probably won't even show that just because of how they disposed of the bodies. I mean, these, these are kids that we're talking about little kids from the time they're like taken away some were taken as young as three years old and kept at the school until they're you know 15 16 years old so they didn't have how would i say a loving relationship with their parents because it was taken away from them and then those parents didn't know how to be parents because their children were taken away and on the flip side the kids who went through residential school we're never taught how to be parents in the first place. So, if you want to change an entire race of people, you totally eliminate them by not teaching them right from wrong. And that's exactly what residential school did. It, it took away the ability of the family structure. And when I say that, I, I really mean that. Meaning, the dads don't know how to be dads. Moms don't know how to be moms. They know how to make babies, but they can't look after the babies. And the fact that the people who went through residential school were already so troubled and trying to get rid of their pain. So now they went into substance abuse, drinking, doing alcohol, doing drugs, doing whatever to hide the pain that they suffered. And on the flip side, that's where the intergenerational, intergenerational traumas start. The beatings, the, the abuse, you know, all kinds of abuse, physical, beating, sexual abuse, whatever else. Whatever else was happened to that person, they turned around and then did it to their children or their nieces and nephews. 
is like there's all kinds of bad stuff that happened. Now that's on my mom's side. Now on my dad's side, you know, there is abuses that happened there. A lot of them will never talk about it. A lot of them never did talk about it. Nonetheless, it was there. A lot of them, like, for instance, you go to any of the elders of my reserves and the ones that went through residential school, you ask them, well, who here went to residential school? You know, most will throw their hands up. And How was your experience? And most of them, nine times out of ten, was, oh, it was great. It was nothing wrong. As long as you followed the rules, everything was great. And that, you know, a lot of, a lot of them on my reserve talked that way. But then again, you watch them when they all gather together and they talk. The the boldness of, oh, nothing happened to me, that kind of disappears. And you listen to them when they talk. And then, you know, some of them get into it, some of them don't get into it. And a lot of them have that, uh, how do I say, fear of talking. They don't want to talk about it. They'd rather keep quiet about it. And that's why I'm talking today because... I'll talk about it. You know, a lot of bad things happened to me too. You know, I, I suffered intergenerational traumas, all kinds of abuses from my family members, from my own mother, from, you know, getting lickings from her for no reason. You see, my mom, she was, uh, how'd I say, uh, uh, what is the term the doctor used? She was, um, uh, what is that word now? It'll come to me. She was... Uh, bipolar? Bipolar. She had... She just flip-flop. Meaning, within seconds, she can go from loving you to hating you, back to loving you, all within a five-minute period. And she only had the ability of loving one child at a time. Meaning, today we're going to love this, this child, because this child did such a great great job, you know, whatever. That's how she ran life. And if you were on the short end of her stick, you got lickings. Was like, you know, a lot of times I'd walk in the house or be sitting there doing stuff at the table and i get hit in the back of the head with a frying pan. Boom. Lights out. You know, wake up a few minutes later and shit, your head's hurting and she's back doing dishes. And she goes, what the hell's wrong with you? Get up. Give me a hand with the dishes. You get up off the floor and you're still shaky and, you know, you gotta go do dishes. You know, most people would ask you to go do dishes, not not crack you over the head. But, you know, that, that was what she did, what she went through. And she just replayed it. You know, a lot of my own siblings never witnessed it, never happened to them. Or if it did, they don't talk about it. Me, I'm talking about it because, you know, I got to get rid of it. And the thing is, you know, it, it was, you know, don't get me wrong. There was times when your mom's just like your mom, like, loves you and all problem, all proud of you, that kind of second. And then, then there's that one section, one part of the day that she just, just becomes that different person. And you, you know, kind of keen when you get scared of her. You know, when I was 14 and a half and I wasn't scared of her anymore. I stood up and when I stood up my dad made me leave the house well, she pushed me I pushed back and I didn't hold back no well, she hit me with that frying pan and I hit her right back with it well, no more 
And at that point, I went around and got after everybody else who did abusing to me too. So I was kind of the, kind of the thug at that point. So, you know, I'll, I'll get into it down the road what exactly happened to me and all that. But you know, we'll just say most normal people wouldn't put up with half the stuff that happened to me. Most people wouldn't be normal if it did happen to you. So I'm just letting it be out there. And the thing is, it's, you know, it, it's some of it's not their fault. Like, for instance, my mom, she was what they call a runner at Labrette School. They always talk about there's kids that stay there and kids that will take it. And then there's kids that say, screw this, I'm out of here. That was my mother. From the time she was a little kid, she was a runner. She'd get away from the school and run like hell. Straight across the country, run home. Of course, they'd catch her and drag her back. And when they get her back in the school, the priests or nuns would then punish her. And when they did, they whipped her up and down the legs, usually. That was the time she was, well, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. She ran away when she was 13. It was one of her last years at the school. And when she ran, she ran. She took off. Her and three other girls took off. Four in total? Four in total. Disappeared. And they were gone for about six days. Oh, what happened? They got caught by a farmer. And then the farmer called their RCMP. And the RCMP then brought them all back to the school. And this is why I don't like police officers. I don't like cops. I don't like anybody. Of law enforcement because it's all full of shit for me. I, I, I have no respect for you because of this. You know, they dragged my mom and those three other girls into the office of the priest. And there is a desk there with hooks, eye hooks. And he had those cops handcuff my mother to the desk and he whipped off her clothes, left her underwear on. But that was it. And then. As story goes, he beat her into submission till she was unconscious. To the point that uh, they had to drag her and throw her on a bed. And they changed the sheets every day because she wouldn't stop bleeding from the whipping wounds. Now, when my mom was alive, she could barely walk in the evenings because pain in her legs arthritic pain, nerve damage, whatever you want to say. My parents never wore shorts, meaning they never showed anything above their knees to their butts, nothing. You know, one day, my mom is sore, and she asked me, I rub my legs. She says, okay, fine. She says, I rub them. She pull my pants up and put that lotion on. So rubbing, deep heating rub on my mom's legs. Above her knee, by her butt, down her legs, the back of her thighs. And it was like uh, running your hands over, oh, like a washboard. There's lumps all the way down. There's scars up and down my mom's legs sideways. Like sandpaper or alligator skin? Uh, alligator skin. It's like, uh, like a hockey stick when you... Put a handle on it. Oh my God! With with the with the with the tape and the rippled dabbing. rippled scars down my mom's legs, both sides. And I asked her, "What the hell happened here?" I told her, "Shut up," she told me. "You don't need to know." 
That's what she told me. Shut up. You don't need to know. She said, oh, okay. I just you know, rubbed her legs. And afterwards, and a couple of days later, I asked Dad. I said, what the hell happened to Mom's legs? I said, I put lotion on her legs. I said, they're rid. Dad said, sit down. So I sat down, and Dad told me what happened to her when she was 13. And I looked at him, and I didn't, I didn't say anything. I just took it. You know, absorbed it. And I asked him if anything happened to him. No. no they are just rough on me when I played hockey, he said. Even then, when my dad went to school, in order to eat better, you had to participate in sports. At the time, it was hockey. There was no football at the time. No basketball. There was basketball, but it wasn't as, as prominent as it was today. But hockey was the big thing then. That and curling. Especially in the winter months. So if you were a good hockey player, you could travel all over with the Indian team all over. And they go from school to school to school. And sometimes play in little small country towns all over and play the local boys hockey-wise. You know, that was a way of making, not money, but getting better meals. Now, even when I went to school, if you didn't join a sports team, you got the basic foods out of the, you know, the school. But if you joined a team, then you you know you can have meals out or get pizza or get something else. So you eat a little bit better food. That's why I joined the teams. You know, you go around, travel all over, you go to tournaments all over the province. Sometimes interprovincial. And the thing is, you you know, if you're a good sports per- person, uh, as they say, a jock, then you got you know made more money or you got fed better. So that's why I joined. Same as my dad; he did the same way. And my dad used to tell stories about the rough brothers. Now, there were brothers that weren't priests yet, but they lived in a monastery across the lake. So they were on the south side of the Labrette Mission Lake. And in the wintertime, they'd walk directly from the school right across the lake over the ice to the brothers. Now, behind the brothers' house, or the monastery, they had a big track that they built in the springtime. It was a big track that came from the top of the hill and slid right down and made a big bank that banked right and then that banked left and went right down onto the ice. So what they did was they actually built a big ice sled out of ice, carved it out so people could sit in it, and then they'd buy horseback, they'd pull it all the way up the track to the top and they'd load it up with kids and, and priests or the brothers, and they'd slide down this ice track all the way down, all the way across, and then they'd shoot right across the ice. And it would stop just at the shore where the school beach was. So they'd shoot this this big you know, sled made of ice right across the bang, 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 all the way across there. Oh, my goodness. So if you were a good kid and you weren't you know, making too much trouble, in the wintertime, they'd take you and go sliding down the, the ice sled. Down, you know, two, maybe three times, but you had to walk across the lake. And all the way up the hill, and then wait for them to get that sled up there, and then they all quickly jump in there, and they all slide down. My dad said, by the time they hit the ice, he said, like, by the time they hit the lake, he said, they're going 30, maybe 40 kilometers an hour or faster, he said. Felt a lot faster, he said, but it would go right across, he said. If there were snowbanks, you'd hit it, and you go flying in the air, he said. It was a rank ride, he said. But he said, it was, you know, it was fun. Now... My dad, he said he was, he was about 13 at the time. It was springtime, so they were cleaning up that 
the mudslide. And he would walk around there, and there was ground behind the monastery that was dug up with big strips. And they're burying something. He came walking around the corner. They said, oh, go on, get out of here, they said. And Dad looked at what they were burying. He, he said, it looked like, he said, something rolled up in a blanket. There was a bunch of them, three, four of them, that they were putting down in the ground and they are covering up. And he always remembered that. He, he told me that. I remember this. He said, this is what I saw. He said, you know, I know exactly where it is. And he showed me years later where it was and it did have an indention in the ground, like something was buried there. And then just lately we went back there to go look a few years back, you know, about you know, six years ago I went back there. There's houses all built all through that whole area now. Yeah, people lived back there. I always, I always wonder if they ever found anything when they dug up stuff. Obviously they didn't. Or if they did, they kept it quiet. Because otherwise there'd be investigations. But my dad used to always say there was... He figured there was bodies built, buried up behind there. But a monastery. And the monastery building is knocked down. Everything's totally knocked over. They, they pushed in all the foundations where it was. So obviously whoever dug all that up got rid of all the evidence that was back there. And that was 15 years ago, maybe longer, 20 years ago they did that, maybe even longer. But at one time that's where the monastery was, it was across the lake from the school. You could actually see it right across where it was. I remember as a kid seeing that. You know, my dad's brothers, they, he had uh, two older brothers, a younger sister and a younger brother. And my dad's older brothers, they were uh, hockey stars. They were the best hockey players that uh, the Brett School ever had. My oldest uncle was Mickey, then there was Kenny, and my dad was Billy. So, biggest thing, biggest name at the time with Mickey was Mickey Mouse. So, we're known as the Mouse Brothers. The Mouse Family. Mickey Mouse, Kenny Mouse, Billy Mouse. Then there was Joni and Guy. They two were thrown into the most family because of my my dad and his two older brothers. And they, they played hockey all over, like really wicked hockey players. They traveled all over to play hockey. So if there was a, a team that was coming around or they needed players to go try out for another team, they'd send the three of them out because they were, you know, rough, tough, mean, play hockey, no problem. You know, that was the big thing, hockey. And they made their names that way. By playing hockey. Now, after my uncles got out of school, they got married, started having children. I have a lot of cousins from Uncle Mickey, and, and Uncle Ken has his family, then my dad had his family. Auntie Joan moved away. She moved to Manitoba. She lived up there. And then Uncle Guy, he uh, traveled all over, and he uh, went to school, became a seismologist, and looked after the oil industries. Didn't he so, say he went to Argentina? Yeah, he was all stationed all over the world, and he did a the company at the time. He lived in Argentina when all the way back in the sixties and fifties and sixties, seventies. That's where he was up there. So when Argentina fell, uh, he was actually there, and then was shipped home by, as they say, uh, uh, running in the middle of the night, uh, coming home. So, you know, that's that's my Musichibi family, and the thing is, it's. Residential school is something that, how do I say, it plays a major part in my life. Because out of all the children that my mom and dad had, I was the only one that 
went to residential school. You know, I have two older sisters, an older brother, and a younger sister. And I was the only one of my siblings that went to residential school. Mind you, when I went to school, it wasn't run by the church. It was run by First Nations, but it was the same building that my parents went to, or my aunts and uncles went to, and my grandparents, they went there. Now, my mushroom, Nukshish, used to go and travel and go see his children. So he'd leave the reserve and he had to get a piece of paper from the Indian agent, a permission slip, and ask them, I want to go see my children. So this usually took about two, three days ahead of time. So he'd be already asking on Friday. So maybe Monday, Tuesday, he'd be able to go. So if they gave him permission, they'd give him a slip and then he'd go by wagon from from the Fall Hills Reserve all the way to Labrette. It was a good day's drive. He said about four and a half hours, maybe five hour drive by horseback. You know, without killing his horses by wagon. So he'd get down to Labrette and then he'd get out and he'd go to the, the fence, the gate. And at the gate there was a rope, so he pulled the rope. And it would ring the bell, ding, 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 ding. And then someone from the church, from the school would come up, either a nun or a brother or a priest would then come up. They'd ask, what's your business? He'd say, I'd like to see my children. Okay, then. I said, we'll see. And they'd walk back down to the school and they'd talk to the headmaster. And if, if it was okay for him to see his children, they'd ring the bells of the chapel. Ding, 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 ding. And then the kids would come up to a fence or they'd go to an area where they'd visit. And when he'd visit his children, there was no touching or hugging, you know, very, just minimal not much but he'd hear those bells all the time ding 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 and i always played in his head all the time so there's one day and he was after visiting his his kids he, he was coming home horseback just him by himself riding and i played in his head ding 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 oh, he'd hum that all the time humming that because to him it was it was happy hearing those bells because he'd see his children. So he sang, he sang a song. Hey, ah, hey, oh, hey, ah, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, hey, oh, hey, 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 oh, hey, 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 oh, hey, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, 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 that was a round dance that he composed hearing those bells. Ding, 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 ding. And that song he'd always sing. So when he was coming down to go visit his kids, he'd sing that song. To him, it was a happy song because he was going to see his children. Now everybody else who hears that song, once they hear the story about this song, this song takes on a whole total different meaning. Now to me, that song is a, is a hard song to sing because you're singing it for so many different reasons. Like for instance, your kids have been taken away on you. So you're singing this song because you're, you're happy that your grandfather went to go see his children, his grandchildren, you know, go visit them. Now, me as a person singing the song, there's so much more to that song now because it's it's a memorial. It takes you back to that time where you didn't have rights to look after your own kids. 
They took your kids away on you. It's like today. You know, residential schools are still alive. They just take a different form. You know, now it's the welfare system. And the social workers. And social workers. They come and take your kids away, snatch them away, and they take your kids to put them in another house with somebody else. Didn't you say when I was born there was already a social agent, like, right oh, yeah. there? The moment you were born, they, they had a social worker try to come in and muscle you out of our arms. And I told that social worker where to go and how to get there. <laughs> I told her, hey, I make more money than you and your husband combined. My wife makes more money than you. So step off and walk away. I'm not one of those Indians that you think they're on the reserve. I look after myself. I have my own business. I own my own house. Like, get the hell off the pot. You know, that's the mentality of the white Canadian, the white politician, the white social worker, the government agent, Indian agent. It's all the same thing. Just a different title now. My grandparents, my great-grandparents had to put up with the Indian agent. A white guy who was in charge of the whole reserve, who they had to ask permission to hunt, gather food, sell food, buy food, trade food. And if he didn't like you, SOL. Because there was a 12-foot fence all the way around the outside edge of the reserve. And only one gate to get off through the Indian agent's farm. Boy, you know, if they did that today, huh... I wonder what the whole world would think about that. Hmm, yes, that that sounds like what may or may not be happening in, in Western China right now. Uh, what happened in World War II. Yeah. Same or kind in, of thing. You know, that's that's Armenia, the mentality. Turkey. Yeah, and then, you know, oh, they'll shovel it under the rug now. So, yeah, oh, we never did that. Oh, no, it was never that bad. Uh, Look in an archive room at the, uh, at the central library yeah. here in the city. It's like... There are actual photos that look like they're from the fucking Holocaust. Yeah. But, I mean, that is the history of residential school. That's the repercussions of it. Through it and from it is where all the basis of our problems come from. You see, the bottom line of the residential school was to kill the Indian within the Indian. The easiest way to do it was to take the youth out. Take them away. Take X out of the equation. So that maybe the languages would stop. The culture will stop. The ceremonials will stop. All that. But. Didn't turn out that way. Especially not my family. Because I was chosen by my great grandparents. To be given back. The culture. Back the language. All the teachings. All the ceremonials. So that that part of the life would not quit. So I was still continually to live. Now, I was taught all that stuff before I even went to residential school. In fact, I never thought of going to residential school, but because I got into trouble, I ended up going to residential school. You know, I was the toughest one out of my family. And I'll tell you right now, you have to be tough to go through that school. Because you're living on your own, looking after yourself at night. It's like going to prison. They had lockup. They locked us in our dorms at 11 p.m. Didn't unlock the dorms until 5.30, sometimes 6.30 in the morning. We were literally locked in a room. Didn't you say they also sent in, like, the... the 
Well, when the juvenile detention center. Kids. Yeah, when the numbers were short in the spring in in September, they would actually bring in kids from the Dojak Center to punch up the numbers so that we'd have a full full potential numbers for getting our funding. Full house, I guess. Yeah. So you know, first two months you had to put up with that too, if we had to. So, like I said, it, it's it was a different time. You know, it was a different way of going to school, different way of thinking, but. You know, end result is, is we all got educated one way or another. It just so happened that through residential school, when we went there, we were educated in all kinds of stuff. Not only just learning school, basic school knowledge, but knowledges of life and how to get along and how to survive. I mean, hell, it, it, it was hell. If you let it be, it was. You know, you have to find your own way. And the thing is, like, the guys I went to school with and the girls I went to school with, you know, some of us liked each other. Some of us hated each other. The ones that didn't like each other, we still don't like each other. But, you know, that's life. Can't get every, can't, can't let everybody be happy, you know. You can't all just get along. It doesn't work that way. But the thing is, the ones you made family with, they're still family. So, you know, those are a few stories that uh, go through my family because of residential school. And down the line, I'll talk about more of it. But for right now, that's that's enough for you to, you know, get a handle on. You know, see, if you, you put up with half the stuff I did as a kid, you know, you'd be somewhat crazy. But, you know, I handled it. I'm here. And I'm ending that cycle of hate. Ending that cycle of abuse so that I would stop and it won't go any further at least that's my portion of it so that tune in the next round thanks